0: I guess we all, we all know that uh, succulents are kind of the in thing these days, aren't they? Everywhere, every store you go into, they're all over the place. So uh, Colleen and I jumped on the bandwagon this summer, and we bought two pots, hanging pots, with, full of succulents, and hung them up in our front, front porch. And they, they did amazing all summer. They, they grew, uh, they, they did very well probably because they don't need regular watering, which is a, a hardship for us when it comes to plants. And uh, in fact, we, we liked them so much and enjoyed looking at them and having them there that when the the weather started turning towards freezing, I took them in the garage thinking that we could save them maybe, bring them in the house or, or uh, put them out again next year or something like that. But I very quickly realized that they had grown so well that the pots they were in were, were much too small. Something would have to be done if we were going to keep them. And so that was a, a problem. Um, I, I, they kind of sat there for quite a long time in the garage. I never had time or took time to fix them up or do something with them. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to do it. Uh, we're not really plant people, so so it was a mystery to me what what to do about this situation, and I figured that if I pr- if I tried to do something or brought them in the house, I'd probably kill them because that's what usually happens to plants when they come in our house, and uh, and um and I just didn't have time, and I thought well if I'm just going to keep them in the garage to put them out next summer, the garage is probably too cold and full of exhaust fumes. They they probably will not survive anyways. And so, I did nothing. Um, everything, every time I looked at them, every time I thought about it, I saw limitations. And as a result, I did nothing. And they got moved, they got bumped, they got they got uh, in the way, and so I decided to throw them out. And as I was picking up the plant, the, the pot to throw them out, I noticed that in the in the shuffle of the garage a piece of one of the succulents had fallen onto the onto the floor onto the concrete in the garage and I picked it up to throw it out with the rest and I noticed something that changed my perspective. I don't know if you can see it, but the dark spots there those are roots. That little pl- broken off piece of plant on the cold hard garage floor had put out roots and was was searching for nutrients in the in the copious amounts of dust and dirt on the on the garage floor and it was growing it was growing there and that changed my perspective it changed my perspective immediately that day i took those pots i found some soil i uh looked up on the internet what to do with succulents, and I spent the whole afternoon working on those plants. Because now, that, that little piece that had broken off had shown me something different. And I, think, I don't think I would be too bold to say it this way. The kingdom of heaven is like a broken-off leaf of a succulent that lays on the cement floor of the garage and grows. Despite the adversity, the plant did not see limitations. All I saw was limitations, therefore I did nothing. But the plant saw possibilities. There's not a lot of nutrients here, but there's enough to begin. This is what we see in Psalm 104, isn't it? Just the exuberant expression of of abundance, of life, of, of sustenance, of, of God providing the do- wild donkeys and the birds and the junipers and everything, what they need to, to live and survive. And, and it's all summed up in that, in that final uh, few verses. May, may the glory of the Lord continue forever. The Lord takes pleasure in all that he has made. I stopped taking pleasure in those plants, even though I, they'd given me a lot of pleasure all summer. God doesn't stop taking pleasure. He he takes pleasure in everything he's made. And then in contrast to that message of praise and glory and and, um, possibility, we have the other side. Sinners vanish from the face of the earth. Let the wicked disappear forever. That's the contrast. I wonder, do I need to make the argument... The biblical argument that gifts grow when they're given? Or could you make it for me? I don't have a specific passage, but let's just cast our minds back through the stories, the stories of the scriptures. Think, for example, of Abraham and Isaac, as God had told Abraham to go up the mountain and offer a sacrifice of his son. And there on the mountain, God provided a gift, a ram, for the offering. But the New Testament tells us that the reason Abraham was willing to follow such a seemingly horrible command is because he had learned over his life to see God as a God of abundance, that God would provide. And and it says that he even believed that if he had sacrificed his son, that because God's promise was that the nation would come through Isaac, that God would raise him from the dead. He didn't see a limitation there. He believed that God would continue what God had started, what God had promised. I think of the children of Israel marching around Jericho. What a a pathetic sight. I mean, they're a large group of people, but they're not an army. They're not trained in battle. They don't know how to do much of anything except walk. For 40 years, they've been walking in the wilderness, they haven't been trained in military. They haven't been making swords and shields and helmets and, and, uh, and um, siege works to come up against the walls of Jericho. And God said, okay then, walk. Walk around the city. And God gave the city to them. It was the first fruits of the conquest. They were to take nothing from the city. We know that one man one family disobeyed that command. He thought, we've been living, you know, in the, in the wilderness for so long. And he saw, he saw limitations. He saw, I, I need to take a little bit just in case things go bad in the future. Just in case God doesn't provide. And, and uh, God made a, a stark illustration. That's not the way it works in my kingdom. We give, we give to God the first fruits, and he multiplies in his time. We think about David and Goliath. We just looked at that story a, a little while ago. And there again, everyone saw nothing but limitations. Uh, Saul, David's brothers, David's father thought he was too young. Everyone saw limitations. And what was the result? The same as me in the garage. They did nothing. They didn't see a possibility. David saw things differently. David saw potential. He didn't know what it would be, but he believed that God would provide what was needed, and he walked down to the brook. And sure enough, the perfect stone was there, and the hand of God to guide it. And God gave to them a victory, multiplied what David did, as he gave of himself, I'm sure not, not knowing for sure if he'd come out dead or alive. We can think of Elisha and his servant when the city was surrounded by enemy armies and his servant said, we might as well just surrender and they can kill us or save us, but there's no point in fighting. And God opened his eyes to see the angel armies surrounding the city. They were protected. We can think of of a, an odd story, maybe the oddest story in all the scriptures of Jonah. And it's an odd story because there's a sense in which Jonah becomes the gift. Uh, he, he's in the ship. He's running from God. He doesn't want to believe that God would be a God of abundance and forgive his enemies. And so he's going the other way. And, and the storm comes, and it's, they're going to perish. And, and it comes to the conclusion where Jonah says, Throw me. Into the sea, in a sense, offer me to the gods and and they'll forgive you. I don't think he was thinking foreign gods, but the people on the ship were thinking in that frame of mind. And so there's a sense in which Jonah became the offering. He gave himself. But he didn't know that lurking below the ship there was a fish, there was abundance, there was provision. There was a way to dry land. There was a way to return to obedience, an obedience that would result in God giving abundantly to the Ninevites his grace and mercy and forgiveness and salvation. Of course, we can think of Jesus feeding the crowds, the 4,000 and the 5,000. It didn't seem possible that they had enough food, but when they gave it to him, it was multiplied. And that's just a, a reminder of a much bigger gift in the wilderness uh, when, when God provided manna day after day after day and, and provided everything the people needed, uh, not necessarily everything they wanted, but it was in abundance, never, never wanting. And as, we, as these stories go around in our mind and, and uh, touch our hearts, we can't help but think all the way back to the very beginning. And the first man and the first woman... They sinned against God, and they became aware of their shame. And God, in his right, could have ended it there, but he didn't. He gave them, he gave them clothes. He, he gave them something. And they went out. And yes, they did die, but in the meantime, they still became the parents of all generations, which, which we still receive that gift in our own lives and in our children. On Thursday nights, we're studying spiritual gifts here in the church and Bible study. And there, there's nothing, there's, there's no way you can read what the Bible talks about spiritual gifts in a way that's different from God gives to each of us according to His Spirit, according to His grace. And the only and, and abiding purpose of His gift in this way is that we would pass it on and give it to the members of the church and the community. And that through that, the church will grow, both in terms of its health and its maturity, and in terms of its numbers as people come to know the Lord. Only as we receive the gift and pass it on and use it, and it is multiplied. When we think in this light, it's, it's almost hilarious to think about Pharaoh and Joseph. Do you remember Pharaoh's dream? Another odd story? Thick and thin sheaves of wheat eating each other Thick and thin cows devouring one another. Crazy dream. Pharaoh was terrified. He could only see the thin cows. There's not enough. There's a scarcity. If there was ever a man that would be justified in thinking that in this world there's not enough, It would be Joseph. Every time he started to get somewhere and accumulate and make something of himself in the world, he was knocked back down to nothing. And yet he saw the same dream, and in it he saw abundance. He saw potential. He saw saw the fact that, that there's plenty. God has given plenty. There'll be easily enough for the hard years. There's an abundance in the gift of God. Same information, completely different interpretation, and emotional response. In the context of, in the context of Egypt and pharaohs, we remember Moses. The pharaoh again saw only scarcity. These people are becoming numerous. And they're going to devour the land. We, there's not room for all of us. So let's put them into slavery and let's kill their, first, their, their male children so they can't multiply. Doesn't sound anything like Psalm 104. But Moses' parents, in that desperate situation, saw potential. They put Moses in a basket on the river as if they were planting a seed in the garden. And somehow trusting and believing that God could take that gift and make it into something. Which he did. And we come to Christmas. Almost exactly the same story. The Magi said there's a king born. And Herod was terrified. There's not room in this land for more than one, even if it's just a newborn baby. And, and to us it sounds so almost unbelievably horrific that he would go out and kill the babies of the land to, just in perchance that he could get the new king. I'm sure in his own mind it was justified. He was doing it for the good of the people, right? Because there's not room for two kings, and I'm here to protect. And if there's another king, then there'll be wars and civil war, and and the people will suffer. So, So this horrible thing, I'm doing it. It's justified because there's not enough. I suspect he justified it. We're not told. Whatever the case may be, we know how God acted. He gave the gift into a dangerous situation the gift of Christmas, the gift of Christ. And I think the the seminal story is Elijah and the ravens and the widow that teaches us this lesson. It it is a story that begins with scarcity. There will be no rain until God gives gives the word. There will be hardship in the land. Elijah delivers this horrible message, but then God says, I'll protect you. And he goes off to a a secret place by a running brook, and the ravens feed him. But more importantly, he goes then to a village, and there's a widow with a son. And she's about to bake her very last loaf of bread. Her and her son are going to eat it, and then they're going to die. And Elijah says to her, make that bread for me. She says, no, it's my last bread. He says, trust God. He realized that her jar of oil did not become bottomless and her pot of flour did not become without limits until she gave away her last bread. First she had to give it to God, to the prophet of God. And then the abundance flowed. Would I, be, would I be saying too much? Would it be bold, too bold to say that just like there's a universal principle like gravity or the law of thermodynamics or something like that, that despite our desires to, to uh, work against it, it doesn't matter. We're going to fall if we try. That there's a universal principle built into the very foundations of creation that says there is an abundance. And if we live from a perspective of abundance, we have life. But if we twist that around and start to think there's not enough, then we start to shrivel and justify evil behavior. Is that a principle built in, baked in? It seems to be in every single story in some way. Some, I mean, some of the stories, um, it's, not, it's not the main point for sure, but in many of these stories, it seems to be the main point. Jesus said it this way. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. He thinks there's not enough, so he's justified in his violence. I have come so that you may have life and may have it abundantly. And then he gave his life. Gifts grow when they're given. You know, there's many applications. I'll leave it in your hands to apply these things to your life if you believe them to be true. But one of the ways that it often comes to me, in my own thinking but also people asking me questions, is something like this. If God is giving abundantly, if he has said that his church will prevail, that his plan for this world is to meet the world through the church, his body, and bring the gospel in this way, then why is the church so broken and shabby looking? Where is the church that can fulfill this mission? Where is the church where the people truly love each other and never hurt each other? Where is the church that has a budget for an evangelistic outreach instead of just barely trying to get Maintain the building and pay the bills? Where is the church where love prevails? Where is the church where the glory of God is just absolutely splendid in everything they say and do? I think that's a question that comes from a mindset of scarcity. What would we ask if we had the other mindset? A mindset of abundance. We might ask a question like this. What are the conditions under which I could grow to be like Jesus? What are the conditions? What are the perfect conditions in which I could grow to be like Jesus? And if your answer is like this. Well, the perfect conditions for me to grow would be a church where no one ever offends me. A church where every time I have a need, before I even know it myself, someone in the church has identified it and given me exactly what I need. I never have to work for it or ask for it. A church where there's, there's fountains of money. We can fix the roof and get new carpet and, and uh, support the missionaries and plant another church. We never have to struggle. We never have to sacrifice of our own. I could go on, right? But you already know the answer, don't you? Those are the conditions under which I would stay a baby in the faith. There's no possibility for growth in those conditions. What if God gave you this, exactly this church? Because he knew exactly the conditions under which you could grow to be like Jesus. Then you look around at the challenges we face and see not thin cows, but fat cows. Abundance. There's plenty, there's plenty enough for what God intends. We read this just a few weeks ago in 2 Peter. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life, for becoming godly people. When we look around, what do we see? Do you see abundance? Or do you see scarcity? I'll tell you what... The succulent plant sees when it lands on the floor of the cold, carbon monoxide-infused air of my garage. It grows in those conditions. Certainly, we could grow in these conditions. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Acts 20, verse 35. Jesus sat down near the collection box in the temple and watched as the crowds dropped, their money, dropped in their money. Many rich people put in large amounts. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two small coins. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions. For they have given a tiny part Of their surplus. But she, poor as she is, has given everything she had to live on. Let's put your name in the blank. Jesus sat down near the collection box in the temple and watched as the crowds dropped in their money. Many rich people put in large amounts, then, put your name in the blank, came. And dropped in what? As you seek to answer that question today in in your life, remember this principle, this truth. When God gives gifts, they grow when we pass them on, when they're given. He is worthy of our praise. We're going to sing about that, about giving our praise to him, because that is, that is the first step, giving our praise. Because first we give our praise, and then we follow through with the other things.